With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast, Inside Tennis. I'm Nina Pantic, and I'm joined by Irina Falcone. Hey guys, how's everyone doing? This is our fourth episode together, and we've got a great show for you. Um, we're getting a little bit more used to this podcast thing, and we're really excited about what's to come today. We'll be talking about Montreal, because it's on this week, and the crazy number of mo- withdrawals that have massacred the qualifying draw. We're also going to talk a little bit about Andy Murray and his experience in D.C., and also the Zverev brothers who played together for the first time, and a lot more. But we're going to start with Montreal, um, and that tournament's going on right now. It's, it's Rogers Cup, and it's going on in the Toronto, the men's side, and women are in Montreal. But the weird thing is that because D.C. was a smaller tournament for the women, a ton of those players were in the qualifying in Montreal, and they um, all withdrew. There was five withdrawals, or six, actually. Six people withdrew. What do you think about that, Arena? All right, to be honest, the atmosphere in the lounge, in the player lounge, in the player cafe, there was one girl in specific, I won't say her name, but when she found out that there had been that many withdrawals, she legitimately threw her phone down and started screaming and was like, why isn't this happening to me? Why don't I get this good luck happen to me and this good fortune? And um, she ended up losing, so it probably just added insult to injury. But uh, yeah, it was really unfortunate. I think it's it sucks to be both in a DC tournament supervisor and uh, the Rogers cup supervisor, because you want players to play, but at the end of the day, if no one is signing in, then that's, that's on players. There was one girl in particular, actually, um, that I don't even think was on the entry list and she just signed in and was able to come up and play. It's really weird seeing six people pulling out of a qualifying draw, but it's also really weird having a tournament, I was in D.C. at the City Open, and it rained every single day, like torrential downpours. I don't know why they keep playing it in August, in the summer in D.C., but then to see so many people have to pull out, I mean, it sucks for their for their season, right? Because they were planning on going and playing this huge tournament in Montreal. For the women in, in the City Open, it's international, but, you know, Montreal's a much bigger tournament. They've lost a lot of money, they've lost a lot of points, lost a lot of chance, but then that's nothing they can do about it, right? They're just stuck playing as far as they can go. I think that it was just really bad luck i mean obviously you cannot say anything about the rain the rain will come whether they wanted it to come and it was just really unfortunate because the players that couldn't play they lose a week they lose a week in preparing for the biggest u.s tournament of the year which is the u.s open so to know that all of a sudden you have to stay in dc one more day and what about the players that ended up losing that match you know you stay in dc lose that next day and then you have a week or two before your next event it completely throws off their entire u.s open preparation i agree with you it's it's extremely weird and it's unfortunate like for example petkovic i mean she had a great week made the semis and then you see her having to pull out of montreal and you're like well she was kind of on a roll there i will say that a lot of players once they get 
to, through to the semis, a lot of times they know that they're going to be fatigued for the following tournament, so they choose to pull out. But props to Petkovic for pulling out and knowing that she wasn't going to be able to make it because even in the semis, she wouldn't have been able to make that start at the Rogers Cup because it was starting on a Saturday and the semis was played on a Saturday, so she wouldn't have made it anyway. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, kind of a bizarre, a bizarre transition from, from D.C. And, and San Jose, I guess, into, the, into Montreal. And then when it, when it comes to Randleys, so in D.C., it was pretty much every day, hours and hours and hours, and these matches sometimes were going on at midnight. Do you ever, okay, do you ever look forward to Randleys? Like, I was playing as a kid, I would pray for rain because you get a break to sit around and pretty much do nothing but play games with your friends. Is it the same situation sometimes? Are you, like, relieved when it rains, or is it always just such a pain? I think it's a... It just depends on the situation. Um, if it, if, for example, for me when I was playing in Montreal, there was a we had a bit of a rain delay on Saturday, and we thought it was going to be raining all day. And if you would have looked at the weather report, you would have seen that it was going to be clear skies starting um, at 5 p.m. They wouldn't have been able to put forth on matches if they would have started at 5 p.m. Which means if you are a fourth match and you see the rain is coming, you're like, okay, let it keep raining. They will call my match soon and then I can just go home. For the people that are second on and will be able to play, that's when you're like, oh gosh, please stop raining so I can get through today and just be here. Not as long as I would have wanted to, but um, yeah, I think it just depends on the situation. I'm, I'm one of the weird ones. I don't mind when a match goes 7-6 in the third, 7-5, 5-7, But uh, there's also days where I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go out there. Just get me on the court right now. Oh, you mean you don't mind if the match before you ends up 7-6 in the third because you're kind of like biding your time and getting ready? Exactly right. Some people handle it a little bit better than others, and some people are just so antsy, anticipating for the match to finish before them. That's why it's always tough. Um, when you follow live scores and, and you're watching the match before you, a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress can build up just watching the match before you. That's why you see a lot of players, you actually just see them have their coaches watch the match or follow the score. They just want to be focused on their own thing. Yeah, and, and hanging out in the gym and doing what they need to do. And, and in D.C., so I was there for the full week and a lot of, like I said, a lot of rain. But one of the most interesting storylines was Andy Murray. And again, because of the rain, he started at midnight and he didn't wrap up his, his match until about 3 a.m. and 7-6 in the third. And it turned into this big moment because he started crying and he was super emotional. And he actually won, I think it's the first time he's won consecutive matches since Wimbledon last year. I mean, he's still ranked in the 300s. This guy's grinding in the comeback and then he just pulls out the next day and everyone was at the tournament like everyone was kind of upset because a lot of the reporters were sitting around waiting for him to play until midnight they were also there watched him till three wrote about him till probably about five six a.m and then he pulls out the next day but realistically he wrapped up and by the time he got home a player like that probably takes hours to cool down by the time he got home got to bed it would have been like 7 a.m and he had to play that next like that well that that exact same day he wasn't meant to play again so it kind of makes sense that he pulled out but I mean, what do you think about his... Did you, did you watch him his matches? Did you, did you see the storylines of him crying and all that? I did, but, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Are you really all that surprised that he pulled out? No, no. I'm a little bit, little bit surprised that he pulled out of Toronto as well, but I could see he was just gassed. I mean, he played three three-set matches, and they were all, like, so emotional, and there were so many match points being saved and, like, critical moments and an emotional and crazy week for him. So I'm not surprised. I'm a bit surprised that matches go on at midnight to begin with when it comes to players like that. 
I think that one of the most important things you just said is the emotion. The emotion that he expressed throughout that entire tournament was just ridiculous. Even his first round match against uh, Mackie McDonald, um, honestly, that was such an intense match. So much emotion there. Um, there was a little bit of drama that happened in the third set as well. So to know that he pulled out, I, I can't even emo- I can't even imagine the amount of emotions that are going through his head after that tournament. And, you know, he's got to take care of his body. If he's playing U.S. Open, he's got to take care of his body. I'm hoping he ends up kind of like Djokovic, and Djokovic came back and won Wimbledon. Maybe Murray will have a great run at the U.S. Open. With a player like Andy Murray, you kind of, even though he he's, watching him is really difficult because he's so physical and he's so tight, like like tense, I guess is the word, because he's always screaming, talking to himself, yelling at his box. It's really, really tough to watch him. But you can see the emotion, you can see how intense he is and how much work he puts into it. So you kind of want him to do well. You definitely want him to have a good comeback. But then he also, in press, can be kind of interesting. He obviously has a very deadpan sense of humor, but uh, a woman in press was asking him, about how he's so outspoken about women's rights or like kind of equality and all that. And he's like, well, look, I'm not really outspoken. You guys just keep asking me about it and I'm going to answer the questions. Like, it's just a crazy time that we're in. But this is this means I'm outspoken just because I'm answering these questions truthfully. And I was like, oh, he's kind of got a point there. Absolutely. I think that it kind of translates from the court a little bit into the press, just how emotional um, he can get, not in a ne- negative way. I'm just saying that he does have a lot of emotion when it comes to his tennis, and he definitely shows a lot of emotion when it comes to women's rights, which is great. I think, honestly, it's just fantastic. And, yeah, if you're going to keep getting asked the same question over and over again, I mean. And we had a female coach as well, so. Yeah, so I think that he's definitely one of the guys that, does not fit the bubble per se. I wouldn't say that the other male players don't care about women's rights, but I think that he's definitely the most um, supportive and outspoken in quotation marks. He's got a good viewpoint and a good vantage point to talk about these things. And he, he worked with Amelie Moresmo, and that, I mean, that was a great time for, for both of them and for everyone, really, to watch. Absolutely. That was a great moment, I think, not only just in women's tennis, but in sports in general. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. And I think he did well with her. I think, I mean, I don't think they're going to get back together or anything, but I thought it was a good run. I agree. Not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah, and now, so now he's 31, and he seems set on playing for a little bit long longer. But another player that I watched in D.C. that really stuck out to me, also because I talked to her one-on-one and, and we hit it off, but we had a lot in common, which is a bit weird, but uh, Andrea Petkovic is ranked 91, and she's 30. And she got the semifinals, and she actually ended up defending her same points as last year. She made the semis last year. So after all of that work and all these big matches, she upset Sloan Stevens. She won a 7-6 in the third over Benchich, saving match points in the tiebreaker. I mean, she really, really put it all out there. And all she gets for all that work is she goes up one spot to 91. Or from, from 91 to 90. I was like, oh. I think for all of those people that don't know about the ranking systems, I know that it can be a little bit daunting and a little bit confusing. I have gotten a lot of questions regarding the WTA ranking system before. Um, for those of you listening, when you compete at an event, let's say someone that is top 50 and made 200 points at an event to continue having that ranking the following year or, um, stay where you're at, you have to do that 200 point result or better the following year. Um, 
and you get 16 tournaments a year that you can have your ranking accrued from. Um, there's obviously a little bit more to that. You also have to factor in the tournaments that count as zeros if you don't win a match and uh, Grand Slams will go on there no matter what. So that can definitely alter your um, accrual ranking point number. Uh, but long story short, to continue having that ranking from the previous year, you have to do the same or better to continue having that ranking or to improve that ranking. So honestly, I'm not surprised that only just went down one spot or she went up one spot. It's not surprising at all in the slightest. I understand how the rankings kind of work from from like a, a core standpoint and understand the ins and outs of it, but it can be really, really, really confusing. And some of the players, um, the younger ones, talk about ranking points a lot. Like you can hear Zverev or, or Denis Shapovalov talk about points a lot. But then when it comes to someone like Petkovic, she's like, look, I don't worry about that anymore. I've stressed out for, at this point, 12 years about my ranking. She was top 10 twice, and she's had injuries and not as great results, and it's kind of tossed her to the 91 spot, or now 90. But she's, she told me that I kind of just stopped worrying about it because she couldn't, because it was obsessive, and she was chasing points all around the world, and it was just, she said it, she called it nonsense, which I, which I found really interesting, especially because she was saying that when she was 28, 29 is when she felt the most pressure, but now that she's 30, she's calmed down. I think that she's not alone in that because I also spoke with another player, Sasha Vickery, and she told me when she stopped looking at the rankings and the points and all that, she actually started doing better. And yeah, a lot of players handle it differently. I've seen players that will literally look at the draw, look at the number of points, look at the amount of prize money that they get before they even step on the court. So I think it's just kind of whatever floats your boat kind of thing. But it's just so refreshing to hear someone like Petkovic that has been around, that has been injured and has had so many struggles to just continue tearing it up and continue to play good tennis at this age. And honestly, to be, you said she's 30 or 31? She's turning 31, I think, um, this year. Yeah, I mean, 30 is not even... A, an, an old age anymore, believe it or not. She's honestly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if her best tennis is yet to come. It certainly looked that way. And, and, and she's also kind of built for, for TV and, and press and stuff. She's such a good character. And it's, it's refreshing to, to spend some time with someone, someone who's interesting and someone who's so well-spoken is the word I'm going for. You know, I, I love that you guys had a lot in common, especially since your dad's names are both Zoran. I didn't realize that till after, but yeah, she was also born in Serbia like me and then grew up in a different country. She grew up in Germany and I grew up in Canada and Florida. So like she had this, and her dad was her coach, but apparently he was a legit player and he played in college and I guess played Paul Anacone in college and that was kind of their, um, they talked about that a bit on Tennis Channel. That's kind of fun. Wow, that is fun. I didn't know about that. So yeah, you learn something new every day. New fun facts about Petkovic. Um, and then also in D.C., the, so the Zverev brothers were really interesting because they played each other for the first time in an ATP main draw match. And just the odds of them even ever playing each other on the ATP tour is so small because they have a 10-year age gap. Sasha's 21, Misha's turning 31. And they were just so giddy and thrilled to play each other. Before the match, they were thrilled about it. On the match, they were professional. But then after the match, they kind of pranced off together side by side, went and did press. We're just so proud of each other and so emotional. and so Well, Misha was more emotional. Alexander's a bit more of a straight face. And they were just proud of each other and excited and lifting each other up and it was just so interesting to see two two men play each other on the tour while the women you usually see Serena and Venus and their story is completely different obviously they're 
they're not thrilled to play each other. They don't want to play each other. But I think that's completely different. I mean, playing a sibling, like, can you imagine if you played your sister on tour? Honestly, I remember the first time I ever practiced with my sister and we played points for the first time and I was legit crying because I just wanted nothing to do with it. So I think everybody handles it their own specific way, (laughs) to be honest. I don't even think it's a women and men thing only. I think it's also an age thing because like Sasha is ranked number three. He's considerably higher than his brother. He's considerably younger, but he had a lot more to lose. But at the same time, he can't be devastated losing to his older brother. I don't know. I felt like it was a really interesting dynamic of them playing each other and respecting each other so much, but it was pretty clear that Sasha was the better player while Misha would have more experience and, and helped Sasha get to where he is, but Sasha also helped Misha get to... I mean, their story is adorable and, like, so interesting and I definitely deserves to be made out of a Netflix movie out of that one. <laughs> that would actually be a really great movie to watch. It, it's just... Um, that is one hell of a story. I mean, I'm sure that their parents must be proud. Yeah, and they're both they're both there, which is fun. To have one son that is a professional t- tennis player is amazing to have two. I mean, look at Judy Murray. I mean, she she had at one point she had Jamie and Andy be number ones in the world, which is pretty darn amazing. Yeah, and she's really fun to follow on Twitter. Especially if you like desserts, that is one lady to follow cuz that's all she posts about and that's what I'm here for. She's, she's a strong Twitter follow for everyone out there. It's also, it's also cool because the, the brothers, I mean, they, I think Misha withdrew from the doubles draw, I think, the next day. But that, I mean, in the end, that kind of makes sense. But they were playing doubles together, which is also fun because, I mean, had you ever played doubles with your sister? I feel like my brother and I would have played doubles and it wouldn't have been that terrible. You kind of, you probably hate each other a little bit more, but you're also maybe more in sync, I guess. To be honest, I have no idea. I can't remember ever playing doubles with my sister, but I have a feeling we would have a lot of fun. Anytime I'm playing doubles, I'm usually smiling, even if I'm getting pegged in the face. So I probably would have just enjoyed it, and probably we would have made fun of each other, to be honest. That probably would have been what would have happened. Yeah, when you're a singles-only player, or a singles-focused player, doubles is meant to be more fun. That's what Andy was actually saying in press. They were asking him about playing his brother, and he, he said, yeah, I played him against him in doubles once, but it was bizarre because doubles is his career, while streaming is kind of fun and working on my game a little bit and getting my rhythm, but mostly a good time. I'm like, that's a pretty big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that doubles, I mean, do, do you think that doubles is something that even though it's meant to be a bit more relaxing, has it actually helped you a lot? You know, the net game, um, holding serve. I think there's a lot of things in doubles that are actually really, really good for singles players. I think you could not be more on point. One of my best years and one of the best times that I was having when I was playing professional tennis uh, was when I was playing singles and doubles. It was a few years ago, and honestly, I just loved every second of it. And one of the things that I improved most on was just something as simple as a return of serve. I knew that if that serve was coming, I could get a return back. And I was so accurate with where I was returning that it translated so much into my singles. And um, I just really enjoyed it. I played with so many different players and had great results with um, quite a few different players, which made me feel like a very diverse player that I could play with whoever was out there. I played on uh, both this ad side and the do side. So uh, I just have a lot of fun when I'm playing doubles and I try and use my skills, my touch and my hands. I, um, I just try and make it a fun atmosphere, to be honest. It's all about the fans when it comes to doubles for me. (laughs) 
It's also a massive confidence confidence boost. If you like manage to knock off a, a good team in doubles, you kind of feel you definitely feel that confidence boost, and you definitely feel maybe more ready for singles matches because you've just been hitting all these great returns and these big serves, and you you finish off like nothing better than finishing off a point with a huge volley and overhead. You kind of get that rush, and I think that's worth that's worth it for for singles players to get out there and try. Yeah, honestly, I I just I I love the feel out there. You know, the the points happen so much faster. The atmosphere is great. Everybody's involved. And, um, yeah, you just have to be super quick. And that's that's what I, re- I really love it. I just I really enjoy it. And I, th- I think it's also interesting to see that a lot of doubles, a lot of singles players playing doubles, they kind of do it more later to their, towards their career. Like maybe not later the career, but like once or a few years into it, you see Jack Sock playing a lot of doubles. And then you get to a point where they either decide, okay, I want to focus only on singles and I'm going to stop playing doubles, or in the case of Sasha Zverev, where he's defending a title, and this is a big moment for him, a big week, and he chose to play doubles. And I think a lot of the younger players maybe don't as much. I don't know, maybe it's my observation, but I don't see a lot of the young Americans. Maybe Tiafo plays a little bit, Francis Tiafo will play a little bit, but do you think that um, maybe the young players, young Americans, should be playing more doubles, or is this something that they don't need to worry about right now? Honestly, I don't think the young players are at fault, to be honest. I think they want to play doubles, but the cuts in these tournaments, especially somewhere like D.C., I remember I was talking to Eubanks, I was talking to a few young players, and I was like, all right, you know, like, are you going to play doubles here? I saw that you probably didn't do well in singles. Are you going to stay for doubles? And they always look at me like I'm crazy because they're like, you know, you just you just can't get into these events because it's just so competitive. All the doubles guys are playing. They're playing every single week so the young guys that you see playing in the big events a lot of the times it's because of wild cards someone like jack sock obviously he's been in the top you know that he can play but a lot of the other guys honestly it's just so competitive and the cuts are just way too strong and what about mixed doubles so mixed doubles kind of tends to only happen around the slams um how do you get into mixed doubles i know you've played before and it, it seems like a completely foreign, doesn't have its own ranking system. It's it's not like there's a mixed doubles ranking. How, how does this happen and why isn't it happening more? Do you wish it was more mixed doubles? I honestly would love to see more mixed doubles. I personally think that they should have mixed doubles at all of the premier, uh, like the big ones. Um, for example, Miami, the Indian Wells of the world. Because then you only know, you know that it's only like a 16 or 32 draw. Um, it's a much more relaxed atmosphere because it doesn't count for ranking points. You're just playing for a little bit more money. And uh, I think the fans would definitely appreciate it a lot more. Um, but with the way the mixed doubles uh, pairings work, you pretty much just get to a slam and if you're ranked top 30, top 40, you will most likely get in. Whether you're ranked top 40 um, in singles or doubles, you can sign in with another person. Or if you're like me, you just sign in for a wild card and that, that's how you get in. I think just doubles in general is a lot more, not a lot more fun to watch, but it's a lot more exciting sometimes if you're watching a men's match, best of five. It can be really mentally exhausting, but if you're watching like a quick doubles, I think mixed doubles, I think they play tiebreakers sometimes for the third set in most of these tournaments. It's just a different dynamic, a different, almost like a different sport, really. So it's funny that you say that because I was going to mention this earlier. You do understand that we had that uh, seven-hour Anderson-Isner match at Wimbledon, um, and we've had many matches that go for more than four hours. Have you heard of this new... um, 
shot clock rule that they've integrated. What do you think about it? Oh, yeah. It was all over the City Open in D.C., and um, players were answering questions about it all week long. It didn't really affect anyone. I think maybe one player got called for it. I talked to Naomi Osaka about it, but she plays really, really fast anyway, so she didn't even notice it. She didn't even mind. But then we also noticed, when you're watching, that the umpire is in charge of starting the shot clock, so he can wait five seconds after the point's done. I don't know what he's waiting for exactly. So it kind of felt like it was longer than... Um, and what the clock actually is counting down. It's counting down like 25 seconds, but it's kind of close to like 30, 32 seconds. So the way they explained it is that at first what happens is the umpire has to wait for the clapping to stop and then say the score, and then the clock starts. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. So they actually added an additional five seconds, and that's what everyone is confused about. But they added an additional five seconds pretty much. And, um, yeah, it's it's one of those rules that you really have to get used to. And um, that is one thing I wanted to point out. When I saw Serena play Conta last week in San Jose, I know Serena plays fast, but I had never seen her play this fast. She was playing exceptionally fast. She was getting up to that line. And um, I could have sworn there were a few times that I saw her look up at that shot clock. And even me, when I played last week, I got a violation because I ended up having to retoss on my serve. And it was past the time. And I got a violation warning. Thankfully, it wasn't anything severe. And I spoke to the supervisor and the referee after that. And everything was okay. But yeah, it's, it's going to change the dynamic a little bit. I think it'll be really interesting to see how Nadal deals with it because he's the one that everyone's kind of inciting in all these stories about the shot clock. Like the one player that's probably going to struggle the most with it is going to be Rafa Nadal because he does take a lot of time. But in D.C. it was more about players kind of either not noticing it or like you said, like going really quickly. Yeah, I think that Contra really played lights out that match and Serena wasn't at her best. So it was a combination of both. But uh isn't Nadal playing in Toronto this week? Yeah, he'll be playing in Toronto, so I guess that'll be his first his first experience with it, I think. I guess we will have to see what happens there. Yeah, it'll be it'll be a good tournament. I'll be in Tor- Toronto actually for the week, um, so maybe I'll I'll find out personally how he's doing. Please do. Okay, so that's it for episode four of uh, the Tennis.com podcast, Inside Tennis with Nina Pantic. That's me and Irina Falcone. That's me. And um, we're going to close with that. You can subscribe and leave a review and feedback on wherever you find your podcasts, on iTunes, and we're also on SoundCloud. Um, And you can find Irina on Twitter at at Irina Falcone and on Instagram, the same handle. And then I'm at Nina Pantagwan on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. See you next week. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 